Well, good morning again. If you would, take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Now, I want you to take a moment and picture this time in your mind. We are on approach. I'm getting ready to lower the landing gear. You need to make certain that your seats are in the upright and locked position. Your tray of tables are up and locked. Personal belongings are stowed. Please turn all cell phones off. Aha! That's why I did it. <laughs> Community Bible Church Airline Flight 007 is on approach. We're going to land the plane today. And the people said? Amen. Amen. All right. That was a little too hearty. (laughs) Should I be discouraged? I don't know. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this glorious day that you've given to us. We do indeed have so much to be thankful for. We are so grateful for our salvation. We are grateful that you saw fit to take us out of death and bring us into life, out of darkness into light. We praise you, we rejoice, we give thanks for that. We rejoice that, that you have, have, have brought us into a relationship that was driven by you and that you care for us and that you love us even in our fickleness and our failures and our sin. As we're reminded in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, we're told to give thanks to you because you qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And we are indeed so very grateful. So thank you, Father, for that. Thank you for qualifying us to share in that glorious, wonderful inheritance of the saints in Christ. We ask that you would be with us this morning as we open the word. Thank you for our time in this wonderful epistle that you've given to us, to the Colossians. Thank you for keeping it, preserving it for us. Its words are as timely today as they were when they were first written so many, many years ago. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for our sins, help us to be focused on you this morning, help us to revel in the wonder of our salvation through the finished work of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, indeed, we are coming to this very conclusion of this wonderful epistle. We have spent a lot of time here and there's been much to glean from it. And that we'll see today that Paul has some final concluding words for us in verse 17 and verse 18. And it's significant. Let's go back and let's read. Let's pick up with just with verse 17. Um, and uh, we'll read verse 17 and 18 of Colossians chapter 4. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment, grace be with you. Well, we've taken the time to unpackage the significance of the, the individuals and the churches that are identified here in these concluding verses of Colossians chapter 4. I truly believe that all of Scripture is given by inspiration and that all of it is profitable, and I trust that you have found that these concluding verses have been profitable to you. 
they've been profitable to me in studying them. And I've learned a lot about people uh, that oftentimes we just kind of look at casually or glance over and don't give much consideration to. And we've also taken the time to look at some of the, con the contrast that is given to us, Luke and Demas, the church in Colossae and the church in Laodicea. Last Sunday, we went to Revelation chapter 3 and considered the terrible plight, if you will, of the church in Laodicea and what God had to say to them in regards to their position and their need to return to Christ. And today we have Paul's exhortation to a young fellow named Archippus. Um, we really don't know a lot about him other than that it appears that he was likely the son of Philemon and Aptia, in, uh, who is uh, Philemon's uh, wife. Um, if you'll turn with me over to Philemon for a moment, we'll see um, something about him mentioned in verse 2 of Philemon. Verse 1, Paul says, To Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, Philemon, again, verse 1, To Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. And so we have reference to Archippus there um, and to Philemon and Aphia as well. Uh, Aphia was Philemon's wife, um, and it's believed that Archippus may have been their son. What we do know about him, though, is that he was apparently assuming the role of Epaphras. Epaphras, of course, as we know, had left to go to see Paul, to talk to Paul about the problems that were taking place in the churches that he was overseeing, primary Colossae, Laodicea, Heropolis, perhaps the church in Nympha's house as well, where the false teachers' teachings had infiltrated and corrupted and taken the people's eyes off of the finished work of Jesus Christ, introducing to them a kind of mystical, aesthetic, uh, angel worship type of religion. We've taken the time to look at that. We won't unpackage all of that again today. Suffice it to say that Archippus was pastoring these churches and was dealing with something quite challenging. Challenging enough that Epaphras would leave and travel all that way to Rome to tell Paul about it. And so now this letter comes back and he has this in his hand and in all likelihood it's Archippus who is then going to be teaching and reading and explaining this letter to these congregations. He would have also been responsible in all likelihood for looking at and, and, and receiving the letter that was coming from Laodicea, which I believe was the letter to the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians as we know it today. And so he has these taken, brought to him by uh, Tychicus and Onesimus, and he is now responsible for communicating the content, and that's a wonderful thing. Paul, who is an apostle, writes this letter, and so this letter then is given over to this church and to this pastor who then takes it and reads it and explains it as we have been doing. Whether or not it took him two and a half years to do so, we don't know. Um, the history books do not tell us that. But certainly he would have taken the time to, exp to expound and explain as a pastor's call is to do that. Now, what we do find out, though, is that the way that this passage begins is significant. It's really striking to me what Paul says here uh, to the congregation. So look at verse 17 and look at the very first word. 
It says, say. Who's saying? Say to Archippus. Who's, who's saying that to him? The congregation. So Paul is giving a direction as this letter is being read, they get to this point and the congregation hears it and they're saying Paul is they're hearing Paul say to them, "I want you to do something for and with your pastor. I want you to do this." So it's significant. So this concluding verse is significant. Paul's emphasis of course is on again the ministry of the gospel and he wants Archippus to do his job as the pastor because a pastor has a job to do a very specific job to do pastors don't get to make it up as they go at least they're not supposed to that's a problem today because a lot of people do that and it's the congregation's responsibility to remind the pastor and to encourage the pastor and to exhort the pastor to do exactly what it is that paul is directing this congregation to do He's saying to the people in Colossae, the redeemed of Christ in this church, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord. Some translations say from the Lord. In any event, it's significant because Paul is reminding the congregation that their pastor is there because the Lord has placed him there. And that the Lord has given him a specific job to do, which is to open the word of God to them for the purpose of building people up in the faith, to establish them in the finished work of Christ, and to protect them from the error that will creep into the church. That's the job of the pastor, the sheep, to, to lead, feed, and protect. To shepherd, that's what a shepherd does. And so, significantly, Paul says to the congregation and he would anticipate that the congregation would do it say to your pastor say to archippus take heed to the ministry which you have received from the lord so he is to fulfill what he was called to do and we're going to get into that in a little bit more detail here shortly but Archippus is, is to be told to take heed. And this verb that's used here means simply to see, but because of the mood in which it's placed, which is an imperative, it commands action and orders Archippus to direct his attention to something, to consider or note something. So because of the grammatical structure of this, when the congregation is encouraging him and exhorting him this way, he is to be reminded to take action and to direct his mind to something, to consider something, which is what? That is the ministry that he has received from the Lord. Now, interestingly as well, this also occurs in the present tense. So this demands that this action be taken by Archippus in an unending, continuous way. A pastor is always be taking heed to his call. Another way to say it is to, to take care of the ministry to, that you've been given by God. 
to engage your mind in it, to be attentive to it, to be concerned about the things that God has placed under your charge with regard to the shepherding of this congregation. It's serious. The tone, the tenor of this statement from Paul, who is in prison, which is significant. We'll see more about that in verse 18 this morning. But certainly in the mind of Archippus too, that is registering with them also, in him and the congregation, I mean. Here's a man who is writing to them from prison. We know about that. We know about it from verse 18. We know about it from the earlier passages when Paul talks about those things. And so Archippus, at the exhortation, and the way in which this type of thing takes place in his mind on an ongoing, regular basis is because the congregation is reminding him of that on an ongoing, regular basis. The pastor is being told by the congregation to take heed on a regular basis, then he's going to be reminded that he's there for a reason. He's not there as an entertainer. He's not there as someone to kind of make them feel comfortable. This word ministry is significant too because it encompasses all the things that a pastor does in the context of ministry, expounding the word, the encouragement, the exhortation, the correction. As Paul would tell Timothy, the word of God is profitable for all of those things, discipline, correction, reproof, building up in the faith. So this ministry that he's been given is related. It's interesting to me that this is really an amazing contrast here. The, Paul says to the congregation, congregation, you tell Archippus to do the job I gave him to do, which will be to your benefit. Because what Archippus is supposed to be doing is preaching to you from my word, which is intended to do two things, save the unregenerate and build up the faithful in the faith. To build up the redeemed of Christ and the things of God. To make certain that Christ remains central to the ministry. I think today, unfortunately, congregations don't do this, but they do make demands, do they not? Entertain us, play with us, make our lives easier. Don't say anything hard, don't make me angry, don't push my buttons, but just get along with us. No, the book of Colossians certainly would not allow that type of approach to be acceptable. That would not be taking heed. Indeed, Paul would tell Timothy that he was to preach in season and out of season and to not tickle the ear, right? It's interesting, again, the congregation is the one who's supposed to be saying, don't tickle our ears. We don't want our ears tickled. Give us God's word. Preach to us, preacher. Preach. And so we find here this amazing exhortation to Archippus, the congregation responsible, helping, aiding him in what God has called him to do. Of course, this would be um, important as well because of what's going on with the false teacher, right? 
And so Paul is even saying in this way to this congregation, listen, I know what's going on in the congregation. I know what's happening with this false teacher. And you're going to need to make certain that Archippus does not give in, does not cave in, does not concede any ground to this false teacher. So say to him, take heed to the ministry which God has given to him. Because we don't want error to grow. Significant in terms of this calling. And so Archippus is receiving this exhortation and instruction, both from the congregation and Paul. We find that the ministry is defined by Paul, that Archippus's role occurs within the context of restriction and, and, a, and a framework established by God's word. So he's concerned about the spiritual leadership in the church. He's concerned about the ministry, the ongoing ministry of the church. He's concerned about confronting the error of the false teacher. He would anticipate that Archippus then, at the exhortation of the congregation, would preach the epistle that he has just received. He's got a lot to do. He's got Ephesians and Colossians to deal with, and maybe Philippians, and the letter to Philemon. That would have come along too. So he's got quite a bit to deal with, not to mention the entirety of the Old Testament that he would have had and would have been preaching from, in all likelihood. And so, in the absence of Epaphras, the faithful pastor, Archippus is given the responsibility to stand in the pulpit and to take care of business. And that's exactly then what Paul would expect him to do. What we find then is that the congregation helps its pastor most when it urges his faithfulness to God's call, not to their personal preferences. This is oftentimes sadly the case in most churches. Churches that have sermon committees and pulpit committees who tell the preacher what to preach rather than letting him open the word of God and let, letting the lion roar is a real problem today. But the lesson that we have here from Paul then again is that the congregation helps its pastor most when it urges his faithfulness to God's call. And that is an encouragement. I can tell you as the pastor, I, it's an encouragement to me and you guys do this for me. Preach it, pastor. Keep preaching it. That's good. That is encouraging because all week long, Satan is telling me, stop preaching it. Don't preach it. Do the easy thing. Change it, John. Do it differently, John. Get out of Colossians, John. Don't preach from the New Testament. Do something else. Do a topic, John. Buy your sermons, John, from somebody else. All week long I get that stuff. Emails, people offering to write all my sermons for the entire year. 2024, all done, sent to me on a hard drive. Finished. Completely done. I wouldn't have to crack a book. 2,500 bucks and I'm finished. For the year. A lot of preachers are doing that. 
Some of you have told me about that. Some of you have told me about how you were at one church one Sunday, and the next Sunday the guy's preaching the same sermon that the guy preached the week before at the other church. How'd that happen? He bought the sermon from the same guy, the same company. Same PowerPoints, same outlines, same notes, everything. There is a great temptation to pastors to mail it in, to cash it in, to not spend times in the books, not doing the deep dives, not working through the language issues, not struggling with the difficult passages that are going to make people angry, step on toes, upset people, challenge people, all sorts of things. And your call to me is to keep doing that, keep preaching, pastor. Hold the line. Stay the course. Keep the high ground. Stay in the word. That's your job to me. That's your exhortation to me. We find similar language that Paul would use with Timothy. Um, he would tell Timothy to fulfill his ministry in 2 Timothy 4.5. But indeed, the ministry requires work, diligence, prayer, fortitude, stick to all of those things. And that's what a pastor is called to do, and the congregation should encourage him to do those things. The idea, too, is that he has to fulfill it. I like the idea of that. The expectation that when God calls a minister, a pastor to a church that he's there at the behest of the Lord. Now, certainly the congregation calls him under the, the, the leading of the Holy Spirit, but he's there as the Lord's emissary, as the Lord's advocate, as the Lord's ambassador to proclaim the Lord's message. And the call here is that Archippus would fulfill that, to do it completely, not half-heartedly, not just some sun Sundays, but each Sunday, day in and day out, throughout the week in preparation, giving himself to the study of God's word and prayer so he's ready to unleash the lion on Sunday. He would fulfill that call. I think I've shared with you before the quote from Alistair Begg that I heard one time him say at a conference when he was lamenting the fact that churches are where they are today because they're not concerned about integrity and precision in the pulpit, but they're more concerned about hugs in the hallway. I don't think that's what Paul's concerned about here. He's not concerned about whether or not Archippus is giving hugs in the hallway, not that there's anything wrong with hugs in the hallway, but that's not the priority of a pastor. And this is hard for people. That's a real challenge for people because what they often want is a Father Tim. If you've read the Metford series, that's who he is, and that's what he's more like in that book. The fact of the matter is, is that the author, Jan Karen, presents this model pastor who is more of people's friend and buddy than he is their shepherd and guide. The tendency is to forget what the call of the pastor is, and the congregation forgetting that doesn't challenge him to do that Notice I'm emphasizing the male because there's no such thing as a female pastor. Your archippus, 
a man is the pastor of the church in Colossae and Laodicea, Heropolis, and likely the church in Nympha's house, making the circuit, if you will. And he's being challenged to fulfill it. That is the ministry that he has been given. It's interesting that um, uh, this idea of fulfilling also is a challenge in many respects, according to most commentators, that this is a pushback against the false teachers. Um, that the language that Paul is using here is even driven and directed at taking a jab or a stab at the false teacher that's in the presence of these believers. If you recall, when we went back in, in chapter 2 and looked at the teaching of the false teacher, he was claiming that the only path of, of spiritual fullness could be found through his methodology. That is, his system of legalism and asceticism and angel worship and special temple experiences was the only way to fullness. And again, this language that Paul uses here that he may fulfill what God has given to him speaks to the idea that only God presents and gives the fullness that's promised in Scripture, and that comes through the ministry of the Word. It's found only in Christ and for those who are in union with him, which is, of course, the theme of the book of Colossians. And so we might conclude here concerning Paul's charge to Archippus that given Christ's full deity and full sacrifice on his behalf and given the ongoing labors and prayer and ministry of Paul and a preface to see all the Colossian believers experience the fullness of divine life in union with Christ, then Archippus must likewise draw upon the fullness of Christ's indwelling life in order to fully discharge all the duties of this divine service which he has received from the Lord. That's the essence of what Paul is saying here. The congregation's role in that, press him into the fullness of Christ. And again, that's interesting to me that the idea that the congregation works with the pastor that way, that you too, like I am with you, are reminding me of what Christ has done. That you too are challenging me or challenging the pastor to, to give you more of Christ and that I too should want more of Christ. That there's a principle that applies here with regard to our union with him, which is the overarching theme of the book of Colossians. That our fullness exists in Christ. And that a pastor who is consistently in the word of God is going to then present that to the congregation and the congregation is going to keep saying to him, give us more of that. Martin Lloyd-Jones would say that he always encouraged the pastors who came and preached for him, he would say to them, may they see Christ. May they see Christ. And I would submit to you that the congregation ought to be saying to the pastor, we want to see Christ. Give us Christ. Give us Jesus. Tell us more about him. Tell us everything you can possibly know about him. Give it to us all. All of it. We want all of it. Don't hold anything back. Tell us about Jesus. It's interesting, too, that Paul's charge to the congregation, again, is in a grammatical form. It's in the aorist imperative form, which means the action is to be taken urgently and immediately, which makes sense because of what's going on with this false teacher 
It's also in the present imperative form, which means it's a demanding, ongoing, continuous, habitual action. There is a constant fulfillment of this command. It's not a one Sunday thing. It's not on anniversary Sunday or Reformation Sunday. It's every Sunday. It's all week long. It's exhortation. Preach it, pastor. Preach it. Keep on. Keep on preaching. Now, certainly the pastor is not relieved of his responsibilities if the congregation does not encourage him in them. But it certainly makes the ministry a whole lot easier (laughs) when you feel like you're preaching to folks on your team, right? I mean, can you imagine a quarterback in the huddle? All right, guys, you know, we're going to, all right, you know, Bob, I want you to run down the sideline. And then, hey, Gary, I want you to cut across the middle. And, hey, Jim, I'm going to hand the ball up behind you because, and they're all like, eh, uh, I don't know. I mean, and Bob says, well, I, I want to run back that way. And Gary says, well, I don't, I don't feel like it today. And, and you know, and, and then, then, then you got Rick over here, and he's like, I don't even want to be in the game. <laughs> so that makes, that makes it hard to play, you know. No, it's easier when the folks are involved. You know, I, there's a, I can't remember the guy's name. There's a pastor who preached in New England. This sounds horrible to me. He had a church, I think, in the Boston area. Uh, It was a Puritan guy. He preached in this church for like 30 years, and every Sunday people would come and they would not speak to him. They didn't like him. So they would not talk to him. For 30 years he preached in that church like that. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, ministry can be hard. It can be difficult. Things happen in churches. It seems to me that the pot does get stirred a lot. Satan is always at work. I once read that everywhere a church is built, Satan builds a chapel next to it. He has a lot of work to do. And he is at work in that way. And it's up to us to protect his influence in a congregation. There are many exhortations and warnings about things in that context, and I think we have to be attentive to them. But ultimately, the congregation is to be engaged in this ongoing, never-ending, habitual practice of saying to the pastor, continue in your faithfulness and in the fulfillment of your divine commission. That's what Paul is saying in verse 17. What this ultimately implies then is that there is a threefold relationship in a pastor's local church ministry. What we find then is that there is, of course, his relationship to God. Why is that? Why am I here today? How did I come here? Now, the story of how I got here is absolutely remarkable. It all started with selling a horse. You know my history with horses. It's a colored one, checkered. It's not good at times. But I will report to you that I do have a very nice horse now. He's quite friendly. And he's not going to buck me off, although his name is Buck. (laughs) So we have the pastor's relationship with the Lord. The Lord called and calls pastors to ministry. And this is why Paul uses the language here, received in the Lord or from the Lord. The pastor is clearly called by God. He will stand before the congregation and preach the word of God week in and week out at God's direction. 
And even what I have to do, I have to remind myself of this. And I oftentimes will write in my notes or in my margin of my Bible or on my desk to remind me, John, you have an audience of one. I preach to God every week. I'm preaching to you, but my audience is him. I want to make certain that I'm fulfilling what he has given me to do. Understanding that my obligation has been given to me by him to fulfill his purpose, not my own personal agenda. We all have agendas, all humans do. And I will tell you that that's a challenge in ministry. Is to not make it about yourself. To deviate from this, to go down other paths, other methodologies that may see and seem and appear to be more clever and perhaps more... Um, more successful in building churches, increasing numbers, getting better responses, making people happier. I believe the Word of God does that. I believe if a person is truly born again, he will hear the Word of God and it will cause his heart to rejoice. It will bring conviction, contentment, love and adoration for Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's doing in this epistle. Remember who you are in Jesus Christ. That studying the book of Colossians will do exactly what Paul hoped it would do in Colossians 1.12, that it would cause people to give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and the light. That your heart would be so full of thankfulness that you serve out of gratitude. That's what this epistle ultimately drives us into. I am joined with Jesus Christ. And so this relationship that I have with the with the Lord and with other pastors likewise, we have to remember that we've been called to exhort people to remember Jesus Christ. And ultimately, I stand only before the Lord in that context. Paul, when criticized by the church in Corinth, would say that his conscience is clear for his ministry, the fulfillment of his ministry responsibilities, because in that example... The Corinthian church was demanding of Paul and saying things about him that were not consistent with his call, accusing him of certain things, criticizing him over certain things, and Paul would say, you know what, I have an audience of one and my conscience is clear. I have preached the word. I have done the good work of ministry. Of course, we have the relationship that the pastor has with the Lord. We have the relationship that the pastor has with the congregation. And we have the pastor's relationship to himself, to take heed to the ministry. That's something I have to do with your encouragement. And so this is what we have in verse 17. And hopefully what will happen is that the pursuit that the pastor engages in will be one that will cause him to be found faithful, just as Epaphras was in verse 7 of chapter 1 as Tychicus is in verse 7 of chapter 4 and Onesimus in chapter 4, verse 9. To be found faithful. That's ultimately what I want, and I want you to encourage me to do that. Well, here we are, verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. So Paul here concludes this epistle with um, some uh, simple fact statements, if you will, somewhat clipped in their delivery, 
but precise nonetheless. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Now, we have to remember who is Paul. Well, we go back to the beginning because the reference to his name is important. Because in verse 1 of chapter 1, I'm reminded of something about Paul. What am I told about Paul? Paul is what? An apostle. That's very important. And by the way, there are no more apostles. There are a lot of people out there today saying they're apostles. They are not. They're charlatans. They're false teachers. They're clowns. So Paul is an apostle. So apostles are the authoritative representative of God, of Christ. And their obligation was to proclaim the good news of the gospel and to propagate it. And they did, through, did so through preaching, through the writing of epistles, these letters that are given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and in some instances to perform miracles. And to do those things, to establish the church in its infancy. And those things have ended because they're no longer needed. Why? It's because I have the full revealed word of God. We don't need those things anymore in that context. And an emphasis upon them is, is robbing God's word of its authority because people then look to those experiences rather than the word of God. They want those experiences and those types of things. And of course, apostles today claim to be apostles because they get to make it up as they go. That's how they kind of thought about an apostle. Well, Paul wrote stuff. Why can't I? Well, because God had ordained Paul to do these things, and he has not ordained others to do them. And you can know that from the content of what these people say today and others throughout the history of the church. And so Paul here reminds people of who he is and the fact that he did, in fact, dictate in all likelihood this epistle. It was common back in the day for uh, someone like Paul to have of, uh, dictated this to a secretary, to write it down, and then what this ultimately means at the end here when he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, it means he signed it, he authorized it. So if you had received this at Colossae, and when you opened it up and looked at it, Paul's signature would have been at the end of it to authenticate it as being really from him. And so what he's doing here is validating his signature and the fact that he is the one who wrote it. It's kind of a legal thing. I'm, I'm notarizing this, if you will. I'm affirming to you with my own signature that I wrote this letter. This is from me, and I'm an apostle. So this is important for you to take and pay attention to. And so that's what that means. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. My own hand. He signed it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wrote these things down or dictated them to be written down. And then this was sent over by Tychicus and Onesimus along with others. That's important. I think that's significant to be reminded of that. So as you sit here today with it open in your lap in Beloit, Ohio, you can know that you have something that was given with the authority of an apostle who then signed it. Who then signed it. Paul then says that he wants them to remember his imprisonment. 
Interestingly enough, again, grammatically, this takes place in the present tense imperative, which means that this action is to be taken repeatedly or often. So what he is saying to them is that I want you to reflect on the fact that I am in prison. Now, the, the, the idea of him being in prison is important. It's not that, they want, that he wants them to be um, uh, like in a kind of emotional syrupy way sad for his plight. But he wants them to remember why he's in prison. He's been imprisoned. Why is Paul in prison? What was Paul doing? He was preaching the gospel, right? So he was there for their benefit, for the benefit of the gospel. And so he wants them to remember why it is he's there. Don't forget why I'm here. Don't forget that I am here because I have been preaching the gospel. Keep that in mind. And that this is for your benefit. And it was for their benefit because if Paul were not in prison, it's not likely that he would have been sitting down writing these letters. He would have been on multiple missionary journeys doing things like that. His imprisonment results in the writing of most of the New Testament. Because a lot of it's written while he's in prison. That's to our benefit. It was to their benefit. Now, it does refer to the fact, the word imprisonment does literally refer to bonds and chains and fetters. And so he literally is incarcerated in that way. And this emphasizes the experience that he's even having. It reminds him of the reasons why he's imprisoned and that it's real. That there is a price to pay for the proclamation of the gospel. Remember why I'm here, and that's for your benefit. Again, the gospel is central to Paul's exhortation. And finally, these concluding, this concluding phrase, grace be with you. Well, how appropriate is that? Paul, of course, would emphasize... The, the importance of grace. He opens the letter with grace. Look at verse 2 of Colossians 1. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And of course, grace is an overarching theme. It's grace that brings us into union with Christ. It's grace that delivers us from the domain of darkness and into the presence of His light. It's grace that sustains us and keeps us. It's grace that maintains us. It's grace that enables us to do the things that we're called to do. It's grace that causes wives to be able to submit to their husbands in a way that is honoring to the Lord. It causes husbands to love their wives as Christ has loved the church. It causes children to be obedient to their parents. It causes slaves to be obedient to their masters. It causes us to stand against error. It causes us to delight in the finished work of Christ. It causes us to remember that we've been reconciled and kept and that we were hostile and alienated. It keeps on reminding us. And grace is, of course, appropriate then to bring back to mind here at the conclusion of this amazing epistle. Grace be with you. Paul will often use this concluding statement in his epistles or variations on it. 
And the idea of grace is emphasized too because again, grammatically, it's a definite article. So it's no ordinary grace that Paul seeks, but the unique and only grace, the grace of all grace that, that comes exclusively from God the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. This is not just kind of like good luck. Have a nice day. You know, I hope it all works out for you. You know, I hope, hope things go well. No, grace be with you. May God sustain you and keep you by His grace. May your minds always be focused on grace. Because it's that grace that brought you to Jesus Christ. May that grace and that mindset always be with you. And the direction to you, to the congregation, grace be with you. It occurs grammatically in the plural. And so the emphasis then is on the congregation. May grace be with this church. May grace be with you as the congregation, as you engage in the ministry of the gospel and support your pastor and stand against the false teacher and revel in the reconciling work of Jesus Christ and remember that you've been clothed in new, in new clothing, fitted and tailored by Jesus Christ just for you. May you always remember that kind of grace and may you prosper in that grace and live in that grace and reflect on that grace and may it always be with you as a church, and don't ever forget it. Don't ever forget it. May that grace always be with you. And of course, this is why this epistle is written, to remind us of that great grace, that amazing grace that saved us, that keeps us, that preserves us, and that will someday place us in his very presence. Grace be with you. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.